0: And we discuss some of the most vital issues facing veterans today. Join us for this episode of Veteran Voices. Hey, good morning. Scott Luton and special guest host, Kim Winter, with you right here on Veteran Voices. Thanks for joining us today. We've got a wonderful episode teed up with an extraordinary and very inspirational veteran and business leader. Uh, Kim, I'll tell you, this is gonna be an awesome episode. Hey, uh, Scott, Greg, and
1: great to see you again. And uh, yeah, you did right. And my absolute pleasure to have uh, contacted our guest some time ago and enticed him to come and join us and, and tell us his story. It's going to be a bit of a special event today. Folks.
0: I couldn't say it better. And I, I do appreciate, as always, your great facilitation. It comes natural for you. Uh, of course, it doesn't hurt that, that you know everybody across the world, all the movers and shakers, just like this gentleman here. But uh, it'll be a, a pleasure and an honor to get through the interview with you here today. So, folks, listening and tuned in, you might be watching, you might be listening, you're not going to want to miss this episode today. A uh, quick programming note before we get started here. Of course, this program is part of our Supply Chain Now family programming. You can find veteran voices wherever you get your podcasts from. Our show is conducted in partnership with a powerful nonprofit doing big things for the veteran community here in the States Vets to Industry. Uh, vets, the numeral two, and industry.org learn more about this what they're doing uh, to help veterans connect with resources connect with each other and find opportunities as well as, as solve problems at vets2industry.org okay with no further ado kim i'm ready to introduce our guest today you ready ready to rock ready to rock and roll here we go so today we're going to be speaking with a royal marines commando and hero to many Our guest has overcome a devastating injury in 2007 to inspire others to overcome their own obstacles. He's since become internationally acclaimed motivational speaker, a peak performance coach, and the author of the award-winning autobiography, Man Down. And even better yet, this is my favorite part. Our guest is relentless when it comes to helping others, raising funds for special projects, nonprofits, just paying it forward, Uh, just the heart of a servant leader. So join me in welcoming Mr. Mark Ormrod. Mark, how are we doing?
2: I am great. Thank you for that warm and grand introduction. I appreciate it.
0: Well, it, it, it is a very <clears throat> genuine one. We do admire what you do and, and admire your journey and, and how it just, it gives you more reason to go out there and make a bigger difference and move the needle even more. So I uh, really appreciate that. And we look forward to diving more into that story here today on Veteran Voices. So, Kim, where we're going to start with Mark is is simple. It's where we always start, right? We we like to kind of share some of Mark's humanity. So one of our favorite questions to ask here is, you know, where'd you grow up, Mark? And and tell us about uh, some of your childhood. So
2: I grew up in the UK, as you can probably tell by my accent, down in the southwest in a little city called Plymouth just down on the coast. I was born in the 80s, raised in the 90s. In fact, I'm going to be 38 years old tomorrow. So I had a, I'm sure every generation says this, but I had what I think is the greatest upbringing ever. You know, that you didn't go home for, for dinner in the evening where the streetlights came on, or your parents screamed your name from the doorstep. <laughs> you were out all the time doing sports and, and building dens and, causing mischief with your friends, you know? And, and I had everything that a kid could ever need or ever want growing up. So Mark, I got to
0: ask you, did you get into trouble as a kid a lot? Or were you really good?
2: No, I, I did, but only, only like cheeky, mischievous kind of things. I was never intentionally bad, right? but you know, just, just little silly bits and pieces, you know, doing things I shouldn't be doing as a kid kind of, Pushing the boundaries and testing out, you know how far I could push. Grown ups, I guess, um, before they came down on me. But on, honestly, you know, childhood was was brilliant. You know, I, I got a lot of fresh air, got to experience a lot of things. School was, you know, no better, no worse than everyone else's.
0: So you enjoyed being outside a lot as a kid, is that right? Outdoors, sports, well, did- dens, you name it.
2: Yeah, absolutely more especially when I was younger, you know, around about, I think maybe when I turned 10, I discovered the, uh, the Sega games console. So that that kept me indoors a bit more than it should have.
0: (laughs) Was that the Sega Genesis?
2: Uh, It was. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It was Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, (laughs) But you know, when I wasn't doing that, I was out just trying to be, you know, a young lad, burn off some energy and have some adventures with my friends.
0: I love that. I love that. Well, Ken, that, that's a perfect segue, uh, into some of the things we want to know about his military experience, right?
1: Yeah. Hey, thanks Scott. And, uh, and Mark, uh, welcome again. And from here in the Middle East, we've spent a little bit of time and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and special shout out to all the vets and the current serving personnel joining us today. And, and thank you everybody for your service, because, uh, Especially in these times that we're living in, uh, the, the respect for people keeping us safe uh, can never be under, underestimated. Mm. So kudos to you, mate. Awesome.
0: Um,
1: yeah, I mean, special for me, my, my family actually, and Scott, you won't know this, but uh, my one side of my family's got a very long history in the, in the British uh, Royal Navy and Marines. And um, so up until uh, my father's age group, so a little bit special. Hey, mate, uh, really interested in following you on LinkedIn in particular, Mark, over the last, oh, gee was uh, six months, in awe of what you've been up to. Mm. And uh, it's incredible. You. We want to hear that story <coughs> today, hear some of the things you've been into. But tell us uh, at the top of the show here what really inspired you to join the Royal Marines, because that's no mean feat to get accepted in there. Yeah.
2: So what it was, is where, where I grew up, all of my friends were two or three years older than me. Now, in fact, one of my friends who are who I'm still very close to today turns 40 today. So he's one of the guys I went to school with, grew up with. And it was actually him, he was one of the, the main drivers that when I was coming to the end of my compulsory education and I, you know, 15 and a half years old, just about to take some exams and then decide, do I go to college, university, into the real world, you know, make some tough decisions he was already in the army. Uh, He was serving out in Germany in the tank regiment. And when he came home, he would always, well, it seemed he would always have money in the bank, you know, nice new car, would go out drinking and partying on the weekends. He would tell me all the stories about, you know, the fitness tests that he'd done and the, the time he spent on the ranges shooting and all this kind of stuff. And when I was at that point in my life, trying to figure out which fork in the road I wanted to take, I just remember sitting there thinking, you know, that sounds really cool, what, what he's doing, you know. And I'm I'm an adventurous kind of guy, I'm outdoorsy, I'd I'd love to do that kind of stuff. And it and it seemed to me like it would be a very fulfilling career that would enable me to grow as an individual. Okay. Now in Plymouth, where I live, it's a very military city. We've got army, royal marines, and navy all. this little city. But I never knew who the Royal Marines were. I I just thought, you know, I got all the, I got John and a couple of other friends in the army. When you watch a film and you see soldiers, I guess they're all in the army. So, you know, that's, if you want to be a soldier and have that kind of life and that kind of career, then you join the army. So he actually took me to the careers office to speak to the army recruiter when he was on leave one time. I came back home with the paperwork because I was under 16. I had to get my parents to to look it over and sign it. Mm. And my dad actually told me that I had an uncle who was a Royal Marine. He He had gone in as a Marine, which is our equivalent to a private. And over 22 years, he had rose to the rank of captain and he'd left as a commissioned officer. And he only lived 15 miles at the road. So we got in the car one weekend, we went up to see him, and I remember he lived on like, a, like a, a small farm, you know, in this cottage. He had a, he had a couple of horses, a big Alsatian dog and chickens and everything running around. And I just remember this big kind of barn door, which was the front door to his house. And, you know, I walked in there and there was a huge framed citation on the wall with a sword on top of it with a green beret hanging off the end of it. Wow. And it was, it was like an officer's citation that he got after 22 years of serving. It was an officer's sword that he was issued when he commissioned to captain and the Green Beret that he'd obviously earned when he passed his basic training. And he sat me down and he talked to me about his career. And he told me about how the Royal Marines were, were different to the army. They were a different kind of soldier and what it was that they did that made them different. He told me about his career and all the things that he had experienced and, and gone through and the kind of things that I could expect to experience. And it just changed my mindset and, and and my direction. So I went back to the career center after the weekend, spoke to the Royal Marines recruiter. And you, you gents remember this, uh, VHS cassettes. Oh, yeah. So he took out the, the VHS cassette, <laughs> he put it in the TV video combination thing. And I just sat there on my jaw on the floor. As I saw these guys, you know, they were, they were screaming up to beaches and speedboats and assaulting beaches. They were jumping out of helicopters with parachutes. They were fast roping out of helicopters. They had these big packs on their back and they were yomping up these huge mountains and, so, you know, just. Where do I sign? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I was like, that's what I'm doing. Hmm. So I right. took that paper. I went home, got it all signed, sent it off, went back to school, finished the exams, and then I got a letter that invited me to do what was called the three-day potential Royal Marines course, which is an opportunity for you to go and first of all, see if that's, it's actually what you wanna do, if it's yeah. the career for you, the kind of environment that you wanna be in. And secondly, it's a chance for the trained Royal Marines that put you throughout three days to see whether you're ready or whether you need to go back home and do a bit of continuation training.
1: On that point, uh, I know. Thereupon, very shortly after, we uh, can let us know how long it took. You also joined the commandos, which just sounds like the best of the best.
2: Absolutely, I mean the Royal Marines are commandos. It's it's okay. one and the same. It, I thought that was the next level up. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. I won't. I won't go into this too much because I'll probably get it wrong but the Royal Marines used to be separate the army were the original commandos and then we integrated it into the, the later stages of our training which is when the Green Beret was involved but yeah I, I passed that three days uh, went home I had a training program just stuck to it religiously you know to the letter did everything that they they asked me to do and was required of me which was pretty difficult because I was only 16 years old at the time to discipline yourself to go out on runs and everything where your friends are partying and seemingly doing stuff that's a lot more fun than what you're doing, but I did it. And then after I turned 17, uh, I got a, a letter and an invitation to go and join and start my basic recruit training in February, 2001.
1: So you're in the commandos, Mark, and uh, no doubt you're, um, you're, you're seeing service. So uh, as much as you can tell us, by uh, all well, I means share with us where you went and what were the, uh, what were the duties, what were the missions?
2: Yeah, so I'll tell you what was quite unique about my situation was I I started recruit training in February 2001. Now, the training back then was 30 weeks long if you made it in one go, if you didn't get injured and and you passed every test they put in front of you. When you factor in Christmas leave, summer leave, Easter leave, that kind of thing, it's, it's nearly a year if you can do it in one hit. And I finished my training. I was very fortunate that I did do it in one hit but I finished it in October, 2001. So it was about four weeks after
1: 9-11.
2: So I I remember we'd done all the the hard and technical part of training. We'd done the the world famous commando tests. We were kind of doing the ceremonial kind of stuff, getting ready for the big fancy passing out parade. And me and my troop were in the diner, just, you know, shoveling burgers and chips and junk food down our face when we all saw 9-11 on the news. And so we knew that, you know, very shortly after we'd officially passed out of training, we were going to be going and doing what we just spent the last year training to do. Mm. Which for me, you know, I turned 18 at this point, you know, for an 18 year old who had just been given a green beret and told that he's invincible, is very young, cocky and brash. It's actually quite exciting, mm. you know? So we we passed out of training, did a, you know, a month or two of just floating around waiting to get drafted to my unit. And then early 2002, I was straight into pre-deployment training to go to Afghanistan on what was then called Operation Jicama. So 18 years old, Green Beret, pre-deployment training, ready to go to war, excited, bit nervous, but ultimately I think I'm ready to go and I'm, I'm keen to test myself, see if I can do what I'm trained to do. And then all of a sudden, The whole thing got scaled back a load of us didn't end up going it became more of a i think a special forces kind of reconnaissance style thing so it was a little bit disappointing Mm. you know i settled back into unit life i ended up going to norway and learning how to, to fight and survive in the arctic and how to ski tactically not not gracefully
0: (laughs) that's like a scene out of james bond kim uh as mark just shared that that's that is so you were in the arctic and and the temperatures had to be i mean how did you adapt to that cold weather i mean you get
2: some some good kit and you're constantly on the move when you're skiing so you're keeping your body temperature warm but what i liked about it is all the training stops when you get to minus 30 but because of because we were in norway that time of year we were there i think you got four hours of daylight and that was it so you spent a lot of time sleeping. You'd get this big tent out and there'd be eight of you in this tent and you'd just be eating and, and sleeping. So, and then when they when they needed you to, they would teach you how to, to fight and survive, you know, and you know, all that kind of stuff. So it was really cool, wow. you know, because it enabled me to grow as an individual and, and push myself outside of my comfort zone. Mm. But we did a couple of bits back in the UK and I ended up boxing for the Marines. And then 2003 came, and Iraq became a big thing for us mm. and so again I got put on the pre-deployment training very similar to the training the pre-deployment training for Afghanistan the time came around and this time it was full steam ahead I deployed us something called Operation Telic 1 I turned 19 at this point and it was the initial push from Kuwait into Iraq where a load of us, well, I wasn't involved in this, but a lot of the guys went and took the palace, the oil fields. I, I was working out of a place called Um, um Khazar, Naval Base. We went in there, took over that place because I was, uh, my role that I got kind of taken out of the, the brigade and put as force protection for an army medical, a field hospital, mm-hmm. looking after medics and ambulances and that kind of stuff. And they were going to casualties. So, you know, I went and did Iraq, came back from there, It's a little bit, if I'm honest, disheartened with it all because I didn't fire a single round. I had this big idea in my mind of what going to war was going to be like. And for me, my Iraq, it it wasn't that. Like I said, I, I spent a lot of time protecting ambulances, medics, field hospitals. All my friends were up there kicking down doors in palaces and stuff, doing the fun stuff, and I kind of felt like I was missing out. So I came back from Iraq... Just a little bit deflated with it all. But I was only, I think, three years into my career. And, you know, I'd already done the training, got the beret, been to war, been to Norway. You know, I ticked quite a few boxes in a short space of time. But my partner at the time then, when I came back, uh, fell pregnant with my eldest daughter. So I I had a look at my life and I started reassessing things, thinking, you know, you've squeezed quite a lot into that First couple of years, five years is the minimum time you have to serve. That was approaching when you put your notice in. It you have to see out a, a further twelve months anyway. So it kind of lined up right where I thought. I'm happy with what I've done. I'm only 21 22 maybe at this time. So I'm young enough to start a new career. Put my notice in. I'm going to be a father now. We'll we'll do something different. So I put my notice in to leave. Things didn't turn out how I thought they would. You know, we separated quite soon after. My life spiraled a little bit. I actually ended up retraining in South Africa as a bodyguard. I spent 6 weeks in Cape Town training out there. Came back home, started working as a nightclub doorman to try and earn some money. I was I was staying on a friend's sofa at the time because I didn't have anywhere to live and things just were going downhill.
0: So if, no, I, if I could interject for a second, uh, Mark, I, I think a lot of folks, uh, I know when I exited active duty, and of course I wasn't a combat veteran, I wasn't a commando, I was a lowly dead analyst, but still I struggle with that transition to find, you know, what is next for me? What's 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 the opportunity? What's the career? What's How do I pay bills? And I think a lot of veterans can relate to that. Uh, you know, we hear about it all the time. So, So you're there between, it sounds like to me, your first service and you've had a, a relationship that didn't work out. And you're dealing with that you know mental um challenge, you're separated from the training and the structure you had in the Royal marines, so that's not there anymore so you're so you're uh, and you're sleeping at your friend's house so that that's a quite a pivotal moment in your journey is that right
2: yeah, absolutely think things are going downhill for me at that point because i I'm still living in Plymouth, I constantly seeing. All of the men that I served with, where they would come out, you know, my nightclub dorm, and they're out drinking, partying, talking about promotion courses, deployments, exercises, training, and I was in Limbo. You know, I was trying to be enthusiastic and say, you know, I've, I've done this training, I'm going to be a bodyguard, I'm going to look after celebrities. You know what I thought bodyguarding was, when really I was just getting spat at and abused by drunken nightclub goers, and and feeling worthless, sleeping on a friend's sofa. And it just got to a point where I, I kind of, I guess I crossed the line mentally. I, I remember being sat on the end of my, I was in a bed at this point, I'd upgraded to a bed, sat on the end of this bed at like four o'clock in the morning <laughs> after a long night in this club thinking, what am I doing? You know, I, this this isn't panning out how I wanted it to. i had lost my identity. I'd lost my sense of purpose. You know, I had no pride in myself or, and who I was and what I was doing. So I decided to rejoin the Marines. know i'd only been a civilian for about 12 months there was no need for me to go through that training again that year-long training
0: what year was it when you rejoined time frame wise what was that
2: so i left in january 2006 and i signed back up in february
0: 2007. wow okay so it's
2: just over a year by the time i'd done all the paperwork and everything and because i'd only been out for a year i had to do an annual fitness test an annual shooting test like a, we call it a weapons handling test to make sure I can handle a weapon safely and effectively. And I don't know if this was a mandatory test or they did it on purpose for, for a bit of fun, but they put me in a CS gas chamber and I had to do all my nuclear biological chemical okay. tests. I think they just did it to make fun of me, really, but I don't think it was <laughs> mandatory. But yeah, four weeks after I signed back up, I was in uniform again, ready to pick up my career where I left off. And I and I, I just felt at home. Mm. I was back around good people who understood me, that spoke my language, that had the same mindset. And it, as bizarre as this may sound, being a, a Royal Marine, I felt safe. I felt safe and protected in that environment.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about, so you deployed to Afghanistan, I believe, not too long after you joined back up, right? So before we, before we talk about your time there in <clears throat> Afghanistan and and. Christmas Eve, 2007, give us, uh, give us one or two individuals that you served with that, you know, you'll be telling your, your great ki- grandkids about. Oh, man.
2: One in particular is my friend. He's, uh, his name's Gerald. Uh, we call him Villa. He supports Aston Villa, the, the football club over here. Just, he's just one of those dudes that if you had 20 people sitting on you, he'd stand back to back of you and go down swinging no, no matter what. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Just a crazy guy. Doesn't not a big guy, not a strong guy, not a, a fighter, but just crazy as hell. You know, and you know that's the guy that you want to you wanna be stood shoulder to shoulder with when it's all going down. <laughs> so he's definitely one of them. Same as Jurgen. Yeah, my friend Jurgen. But this dude was big and he could fight, like six foot three, big, blonde, muscly guy. And uh there was just there was a load of guys, you know, the, the ones you know, you know, I've got like like friends now, like like Ben and Sam, they were physical trainers in the Marines. I know that my life could go to complete chaos. And if I pick the phone up to those guys, they'll get me sorted. You know, those are the kind of bonds that are created. In I service. love that.
0: And we could dedicate a whole series, I bet, to uh, talking about those relationships and, <clears> and <throat> uh, your your comrades in arms and uniform. So let's move to Afghanistan, but I, w- I want to make a really important point here and kim would love for you to comment you know a lot of folks when they're down in the dump so to speak and they're struggling you know some folks never come back right never come back the first time but as our listeners are going to hear not only did mark come back the first time but he's come roaring back a second time and 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 kim that is you know i didn't i didn't really appreciate that you know that first comeback uh in my prep work how about you
1: absolutely yeah i mean um and and you know I wasn't aware of that either, Mark. So thanks for sharing that, man. But you know, as part of our executive coaching business, I'm dealing with a lot of execs all around the world, men and women, pretty regularly. And inevitably, no matter what you're talking about in business, the personal side comes in. And and most people have been through some degree of crisis, if not many. In my case, nearly losing my life on about a dozen occasions, which is another <laughs> whole story. But I don't know why, but it, it just keeps on happening. And um, but a couple covering it from a couple of those myself, my own personal journey, I've hit rock bottom a couple of times in, in my several decades. So we hear what you're saying, um, been been to similar places, Mark, and uh, just really appreciate the fact that you're able to bounce back. But you know, let, let's now hear what happened when the, really the biggest. So, you know, happened in your life and uh, and give us a little bit of background about when things really changed for
0: you. Yeah, please.
2: Okay. So, you know, like um, you said just now, Scott, it wasn't long after I rejoined that I deployed. So when I got to my unit, they were already in the early stages of pre-deployment training for Afghanistan mm-hmm. on what was now called Operation Herrick. And what, what struck me was that when I started this training, it was different to the, the training of the previous two. It was, it was longer for a start. It was more aggressive. It kind of seemed to have more of a, a niche down purpose. And, I, and it, you just got that feeling that the deployment was going to be very different, especially, you know, from what I experienced in Iraq. And I think I joined that unit March 2007. And we deployed to Afghanistan on the 7th of September on operation herrick seven for a six-month tour then when i flew out i initially went into a place called camp bastion which i'm, I'm sure you gents have heard of big airfield there lots of logistics and everything all the the support happens from there but you have to spend a couple of days there just to acclimatize your body you know your kit and equipment works different in a desert as it would to a jungle for example so you have to prep it and get it all ready and then you know you got a run a few drills and and training series to make sure that, again, you can operate in that environment, the way the kit's prepped, and the way your body's now feeling in in this heat and this dryness. So we spent about four or five days in Camp Bastion, and then myself and a bunch of the the lads were thrown on the back of a Chinook, and we were flown out to a place called Ford Operating Base Robinson, which was in the kind of southern area of, of the Helmand Province. Now, our job while we were there was very similar to those that had gone before us and those that were there with us. We, we had an area of operations that we were responsible for. We had to go out into that area on foot. We had to protect the civilians in the villages. We had to disrupt enemy positions. We had to confiscate or destroy weapons caches, gather intelligence, act on intelligence, you know, basically protect our area while also taking the fight to the enemy and looking after the people of Afghanistan. And we did it very well. You know, we've been there about three, maybe three and a half months. We had been on countless numbers of these patrols. Mm. We had come into contact with the enemy, you know, all the time, got into to these firefights and never sustained a scratch, in a three-month period, not, not a single... In- the only injuries we had, I think, were a couple of guys fell off a wall and hurt their ankles, and uh, I think one might have had diarrhea and vomiting, and that, that was about as, as bad as it got for us. Now, on the early hours of Christmas Eve, myself and a handful of lads were called up to the headquarters compound, <clears throat> and we were given a brief on what was to be our next foot patrol. Now, prior to this... You know, we had a mission, we had a purpose, we had an objective, we'd go two, three, four, five miles, five, six, seven, eight, nine hours at a time, mm. go out, do what we had to do and come back. The idea of this patrol was that we were gonna leave the the rear entrance of our camp in two sections with eight men in each section. One was gonna go north, one was gonna go south. We got told to patrol the immediate perimeter of the camp, pushing no more than 300 meters from the perimeter wall. Mm. Then these two sections of men would meet at the front entrance of camp. So now the opposite side, where we were going to secure the location, close things down, and finish up for the day. So compared to what we'd been doing, this was extremely basic, low-level stuff. No, no cause for concern. We had no intelligence that gave us any cause for concern. It was just basically go out in two groups, walk around the camp, come back in the front door. That's it. So we got all our kit and equipment ready. And we went back up from our compound to the rear entrance to camp and we got ready to leave. We got the green light, they opened the gate. I was second in command of the section that went north. The other guys went south. And we went out and we did what we were tasked to do. About six hours into it, now both these sections find themselves on the other side of the camp. So now at the front entrance, ready to close things down and finish up for the day. And the section that I was in happened to find ourselves on this high piece of ground. It's probably the highest piece of ground for about a two-mile radius called the North Fort. Slightly underneath our position was Ford Operating Base Robinson. And then some way beneath that, just off to the side of the main dirt road that ran through the area, was the other section we left with earlier in the day. So because we're on this high feature, we're in a very... Advantageous position tactically because we can see everything around us mm. but it's also a lot easier to fight going down a hill than it is up so we were given the task of protecting that other group while they went into camp they would get behind the safety of the perimeter wall they would protect us and then we could peel down off this high feature and go back into camp so we're given our task the section commander took his half of the section and he started giving them fire positions and then i took my half of the section and about five metres to my front, there was a, like a shallow bowl in the ground. Now, normally what you would do in this situation, if you were going firm on a patrol and you were stopping, is you'd want to take cover, cover from view, cover from fire. Get behind a building, a wall, a tree, a rock, a shrub, wherever you can find, get down low and give the enemy the, the smallest possible opportunity to, to engage you. So I thought, you know, five metres to our front, there's this little bowl. We're up very high anyway. If we get in this bowl, get on our bellies, you're not going to be able to see us. And it's going to make it very, very difficult if you do see us for you to engage us. So that for me at the time, given our environment was the best form of protection that I could give myself and and these lads. So we jumped in the bowl. They all started taking up their fire positions. I I stood back and observed for a little bit, making sure that we were going through our SOPs and procedures, making sure everything was right picked a position for myself when they gave me the thumbs up that they were happy and they'd been through everything they needed to go through. I did a few more checks. And then when I was happy, I started slowly walking over towards a position that I selected for myself. Now, when I got there and I went to get down onto my stomach, as I put my right knee on the floor, I knelt on and detonated an improvised explosive device.
0: So bear with me, you know, it, it's, it's <clears throat> difficult to interview because it's an experience that, you know, very few people ever have. So if I ask some very stupid questions, I'm going to apologize upfront, but at what point, you know, when, when I've, when I've cut myself at, from time to time, right. Initially, uh-huh. initially it's like, oh, you know, no big <clears throat> deal. And then the, the times I've really cut, it kind of dawns on me that, okay, I've got to, we've got to do something here. At what point did it, did it strike you that, man, we've got to, you know, Evacu- you know, evacuate. I need to get to a facility. What was that? How that mental process go?
2: Do you know? What? It's um. So you mentioned the terrain in Afghanistan, right? It's very sandy, very dirty, very dusty. So initially, I had no idea what I had done, mm. and I thought we we had come under attack. Right? There was no pain. This huge dust cloud had been created from the explosion, so I couldn't see anything. Okay. My adrenaline had spiked. And I thought, we've been hit with a, because we're up on this high feature, a mortar or a rocket's come come close by. We need to find where the enemy are and, and neutralize the threat. Now, I couldn't see anything. Mm. So I had to wait until this dust cloud had settled so I could assess the situation and start trying to figure a way to get out of it and make sure that everyone's safe. And it wasn't until that dust cloud settled that I kind of looked down to where my legs should have been and, and saw that it had been completely torn off from the knee down that the realisation of, of what I had done hit mm. you know and, and I knew quite quickly after I saw that we weren't under attack I, I was the the idiot that had stood on and detonated the improvised explosive device mm. and you know I noticed my arm very shortly after that but the amount of, of blood and, and claret and fluid just pouring out, you know, you, you instantly know, like, this is going to be a miracle if I get out of this because you can almost feel your life force draining out of you. You get oh, very, gosh. very tired. You feel just extremely exhausted. No pain, bizarrely enough, just like a, a, a really intense pins and needles. Very, very uncomfortable feeling, but not a painful one. And uh, the, the thing that a lot of people struggle to understand is that despite all of that, you feel very relaxed. I don't know why, you know, it's the body's way of dealing with things, the adrenaline's kicked in, you know, the body's natural chemicals to fight to fight pain have, have kicked in, but there's so much going on that you just can't compute it, if that mm. makes sense, and it's mm-hmm. very surreal, but, you know, and I always say this um, whenever I tell these stories, the professionalism of the guys that I was on the ground with, the the hope i can say this but the balls of of those guys still now when i think about it it just astounds me like the way they did what they did because we'll we'll drill this right a million times casualty evacuations casualty and someone will always mess it up right but when you've got to do it for real it's insane how precise people can be Mm. you know before we got on a patrol everyone's got a a predetermined responsibility in case this happens. One guy will get on the radio to call in the evacuation. The guy closest will get on his belly with a bayonet and start trying to mark a clear route for when the medic gets there. There'll be another guy that will be coordinating any loose bodies in a defensive position in case there's a small arm attack, follow up, and everyone just did it. No one panicked, no one froze, no one got emotional and ran in to try and help me because we're not trained to do that. We're trained to do the opposite. And it was like a well-oiled machine. You know, and I and I never truly, despite what I was looking at, never truly thought that they wouldn't get me out of there. I knew they would. I knew they'd do whatever it took mm. to get me out of there. You know, and it, it was an intense, intense uh <laughs> period going through that.
0: It, it is tough to. I really appreciate how you describe it because I think that really helps us. That you know, the the ninety nine point. Nine 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 percent, you know, of, of humanity that has never experienced anything really remotely similar. So I really appreciate that. It's very, it paints a a stark visual. I want to move into and then Paspatani. I want to move into that that recovery and and especially that, you know, that the those uh, moments you had. And then I'll let you take it from here. Sure, sure. Thanks, Scott.
1: Uh, I got to say, Mike, I'm still a, a few bumps all
0: over, man. So it's done.
1: thanks so much for sharing that. I know it must be difficult, but yeah. You know, from your perspective, where you're at in that situation, just before I ask you about the recovery phase of it, I mean, the odds of you surviving that must have been in single digit, mm-hmm. I mean You lost two legs and an arm. The amount of fluid you must have lost. I mean, what, what were it? Did they ever give you the odds?
2: A, a very, I'll tell you the very quick version of this one, when the evacuation happened. So the medic got to me quite quickly because of well how close we were to the base. We had to put my, my foot onto my stomach that was still kind of semi-attached on my right leg. Mm. I fell out the back of the vehicle that was evacuating me and the driver grabbed my femur bone and held me in the vehicle. And when I got to the, the helicopter landing site and the helicopter landed, I died. And when I got in the back of the helicopter, when they tried putting intravenous lines into my veins, they couldn't because they had collapsed because of the blood loss. They put a, like an oxygen mask on me, which should have steamed up to show that I was breathing. And then they felt me for a pulse I didn't have one. They said, no, this guy's gone. Now, it wasn't until one of the medics saw my eye flutter, which to them was a sign my heart was still beating, that they knew I was still alive. And so they tried to perform a a procedure on me, which you you wouldn't believe this. It only got cleared to be used three days prior to this incident. It had never been used on a casualty in the field before. And basically, if you can't get intravenous lines into somebody through their veins. They had developed a new technique where you take a drill, a medical drill, and you drill into the casualty's tibia and fibia and you get a line in that way. And that had been proven to work in practice. Big problem being I had no tibia or fibia because it just been completely destroyed by this IED. So these medics, and, and you've got to bear in mind as well, right? It's never been done before on a human casualty in the field. It's only been practiced in a calm-ish Sterile clinical training environment. Now we're on the back of a chinnick helicopter that's banking from left to right. It's trying to avoid RPGs and AK-47 far from the ground. There's dust and sand flying everywhere, there's blood everywhere, feet and arms all over the, you know, limbs everywhere. And these guys are just like trying to take all this in and work on me. So amongst all that chaos, they decided that because I didn't have a tibia or fibia, they would try and drill into my hip bone and get the fluids in that way. Hmm. So they did it once and it didn't work. They said this, the skin was too loose. So they, they tightened it. They drilled in again. They got the drill and the line to bite. They got fluids in. And they said like three minutes later, they were asking me questions. And, and I was coherently answering their questions. They, they, I literally was dead three minutes prior. And they had just hoped that this would work. It worked. And then three minutes later, I was talking. I don't remember any of it, but yeah, they said I was talking and they took me back to Camp Bastion where I started my tour. They took me to the field hospital, you know, obviously because it was a traumatic amputation, I was, a, everything was a mess. So they had to chop both legs and the arm, tidy everything up, bandage it up, minimize the, the risk of infection from the sand and the dirt, stabilize me and then fly me home, which they did on Christmas Day. I got back about four o'clock in the morning on Christmas Day.
1: Hell of a Christmas present.
2: <laughs> I've had that mm. at Christmases.
1: Mm. Yeah. Mate, you're a miracle, man. you meant to be here and, and so glad to have you. you. I mean, you went through that, I'm sure. You, you had an enormous recovery period. What was what was the eureka moment that you had really that shaped all the amazing things that you've done ever since? I mean, you've been down before on the end of the bed and... Um, <laughs> Surfing and then you recovered from that, but this was much bigger challenge. This was the biggest challenge most people would ever see in their lives. Uh, how did you get that eureka moment? To say, you know what? I'm going to fight, and I'm going to make things happen.
2: So three and a half weeks after I was injured, and you know I was brought out of the comas, took off intensive care, taken up to a, a single room where I was to regain my strength and you know just try and figure out what was going to do moving forward with my rehab. I got the old classical doctor come in and say, I'm sorry, mate, you're never going to walk again, you know, because I was missing both my legs above the knee and my right arm above the elbow. And every joint you lose as an amputee makes your life a hundred times harder.
0: Hmm.
2: Now He had never, he had been amputating people for over 30 years and had never met anybody who was just missing one leg above the knee that had success using prosthetics. So he had to come in and say, look, you've got both legs missing and your dominant arm. I'm really sorry, but you've got zero chance of being out of a wheelchair which hit me really hard, you know? But about five days after that, some guy came to visit me who was injured in Iraq in 2005, an army guy, and he had lost both his legs above the knee. He walked in my room on prosthetics. He told me about his story. He told me about his injuries and his incident and and what he was doing at that point in his life and how he'd gone from the hospital bed where I was to the life that he was living now. I then got a laptop brought in my room you know, he had both his arms which makes things you know missing your dominant arm makes things a lot harder but then i got a laptop brought in my room and i started googling for somebody with injuries more similar to mine and i found a guy in in america who was just out there dominating life lived independent of a wheelchair could drive a car traveled the world in his own, was a motivational speaker you know doing all this stuff that i thought you know i didn't think i knew that, that i wanted to be doing but yeah had zero idea how I was going to achieve it because I was the UK's first triple amputee. But that for me was the moment where the light bulb went off and I thought, well, I understand what this doctor's saying, but he may not have met this guy that I've just met on the internet and, and seen what he's doing. You know, he's an expert, no doubt, but he doesn't know everything. And I'm, I'm seeing with my own eyes that I've met a guy who's coming in my room, missing both his legs. I see a guy with, Three limbs missing on the internet doing X, Y, and Z. If they can do it, why can't I do it? And and that was my eureka moment. I was like, okay, cool. This is this is what we're gonna do, and we're gonna we're gonna copy what these guys did. We're gonna model their rehab, and we're gonna get our life back. I,
1: sup- I suppose nobody can really imagine what you went through, mate. That you you went through what you needed to <coughs> get through the barriers. You had the the inspiration. To go on and do incredible things. I mean, talk to us a little bit about some of those projects, moving fast forward, if you like. I don't mean to diminish the time that you must have spent struggling, and I know you must have gone down and come back to again so many times. But tell us some about some of the things you've been doing, because your, your inspiration to others is incredible. I've been following you for a long time, as I say, and you're just doing so many things to improve the lives of others, not just amputees and people who have been down and and injured and, and vets, but so many people in every walk of life. Tell us about some of those big projects because, you know, these things need to be heard. Yeah, I mean,
2: there's, God, there's so many to list. I don't want to rattle on too much, but <laughs> I tell you what, here's a good example of how you can find the good in the bad. Okay, so I lost my right arm. In the evenings in rehab, all the guys would be on the Playstations and the Xboxes, but I couldn't do it. Mm. So I took the opportunity to hire a ghostwriter and write my first book. You know, I spent my evening in rehab dictating my stories to this guy who would then type them up and we wrote a book. You know, I'm hopefully just about to finish book number two over you know, 10 years later, but that's an exciting project. Well, hey, um, and Mark,
0: just really quick, that is Man, man Down, correct. The, the one you wrote while you're yeah. in the hospital recovering. Wow.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Which was fun. You know, it's something I, ne- I thought I'd never get to do it in my life and you know, if things got a plan, I got four or five books in me to, to carry on writing. So we'll see how that goes. But I spent 10 years after I was discharged in 2010 working for the Royal Marines charity, raising money for them to help members of the Royal Marines family, uh, injured, wounded, sick, you know, if any of the challenges that they had. I made a documentary. Uh, I'm looking at making a couple more of those as we go forward. I was fortunate enough to compete in the Invictus Games. Uh, In 2017 and 18, in Canada and Australia, winning a bunch of medals and got loads and loads and loads of of little projects, you know, over the years in between. But the biggest one, which is about to pick up again now that hopefully COVID is is tailing off, is turning this story into a movie. Um, We were supposed to start February, literally, I think we were supposed to start two weeks before COVID was actually announced February last year. And now finally we're getting around to to being able to get into the studio and start filming. So that's gonna be my next big focus.
1: Yeah, and you do a lot of speaking, Mark. Tell us tell us a little bit about that. what are the sort of groups that you speak to because sure as hell, you don't need to know much about your story to be inspired by it. That's for sure. Mm.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is another thing that I never thought I'd get to do, but um, I got asked to share my story about 11 years ago at a military charity event, very unpracticed, unrehearsed and raw. And it, it kind of resonated with people. So I, I polished it up a little bit, got an agent, and that's taken me around the world now. Either at, you know, one end is corporates, you know, big thousand plus auditoriums full of people. And the other end is is schools. You know, where you go and you speak to school children. Some of the schools I've spoken at have, have got six kids in them. That's it. They're not mainstream schools. Um, so yeah, sharing my story lessons, you know, I don't want to say advice, but any, any, any wisdom I can impart on people that are going through tough times and try and help them flip their mindset a little bit and then look at things differently.
1: Yeah. I well, was just going to say, I mean, you know, so many people don't really know that they're alive and don't really live a meaningful life as far as I can, as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's so, uh, it's such a good story to resonate, to, to, to give people hope and uh, give them some inspiration. I, at the top of the show, off pre-show, you were talking about a big project that you had offshore coming up in the next few weeks. And I just wanted to put a, a bit of a, a shout-out here. It sounds like you were saying that, that that project, because of the environment we're living in at the moment, has just been uh, curtailed or cancelled or postponed. And so all of a sudden you find yourself for the first time in quite a time with about a six to eight-week gap. So um, what I'm just going to say is if, if anybody's interested in, in getting an inspirational speaker or have a chat to you, I'm sure you're going to be happy in talking to people and filling in that gap.
2: Uh, yeah, I was just I was sp- supposed to film a TV show out mm. in, in South Korea. But, you know, like you said, that's not going ahead now. But the universe, if you want to call it that, will always find a way to fill that gap. And coincidentally, my children last week broke up for summer from school, so I've got six weeks with them. Should we have some fun, go on some adventures, and uh, use that time wisely? I
0: Love that, and I, I want to echo what Kim shared to any of our listeners. You know what a wonderful opportunity for Mark to come speak to your team because I tell you, what he's gone through makes any other challenge you have in life, in business, you name it, pale in comparison. That 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 doesn't even do it justice. What's so what's so interesting, Kim? Is you know when I stopped the interview as 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 Mark was talking about kind of before he went back into the more Royal Marines and and you know he was a he was um, uh, a doorman at a bar and he was sleeping on his, his friend's couch and we were talking about how that's a a tough time, man. Mark, you raised Annie a hundred a thousandfold and to come roaring back like you have now and have so much to give, I mean so much to give. It, it's it's nothing short and coming back from death, frankly. As you laid out, uh, it is nothing short of amazing. All right. So folks, make sure you connect with Mark. We're gonna have his his contact information in the show notes. Make it really easy. If for some reason the link doesn't work or, or or you have any other kind of issue, reach out to us. You can reach out to Amanda at supplychainnow.com or you can certainly reach out to Kim and his group and we'll make sure we let you know how to do that here before we wrap. All right, so there's there's folks listening to this interview, undoubtedly, Mark. And whether they're veterans, whether they're business leaders, whether they're Folks out of work, they're dealing with the setbacks that come at us all in life. Uh, not not many at, at, at what you've gone through, of course, but what would, be, what would be beyond what you've shared already? What would be your message to that one person that was meant to hear it? What would that be?
2: I always like to tell people, it's very much about your mindset. I think once you change your mindset, you change your life. And I always say that there's opportunity in adversity, and that is why i've been fortunate enough to do all, all the things that i've done over my life but i think a lot of us are preconditioned that when we face adversity we just default to, to the negative you know why me this isn't fair you know i hate my life but and same as in business you come up against a challenge in business you don't get the contract you wanted or your employees leaves or whatever it is sometimes you just step back and you take that helicopter view you know and just take a breath look down and go okay what's good about this where are my opportunities in here? Do you know what I mean? Like, like I say, your employee leaves your business. You weren't expecting it. Okay, that sucks. They're really good. What's the opportunity? Right. I get to fill that role now with somebody who could potentially be better. Or did that role need to exist in the first place? Can I automate that role? Can right. I outsource it? You know, you just got to take a breath, you know, chill, take the helicopter view, right. and just look for
0: the good and the bad. Uh, so I hear that. I hear some of what you're implying or speaking to is you kind of peel off the emotional side of the setback, so you can look at it really practically. And uh-huh. and Kim, the other thing in in a couple of conversations that we've had with Mark and 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 some of the moments in this interview, it seems like to me that Mark keeps a pretty healthy sense of humor and a sense of perspective. Is that what you, Kim?
1: Sure as hell. I mean, you know, you could almost be an Australian or a New Zealander, mate. But. Uh, <laughs> You certainly know how to take the uh, take the, the fun into things. And uh, look, I, I'm just staggered. I mean, I knew we were doing this today, and I didn't really get myself emotionally prepared for it. That uh, you've really got you've really got me going. I mean, you, the amount that you do for other people, and I, and I hear what you're saying, and it's there's no better there's no better way to try and forget about yourself and your own problems than by giving to others. And I, mm. I think we all share that, and that resonates with a lot of people. But mate, terrible amount of respect you for what you're doing. I'm really looking forward to meeting you when I get to the UK once we get this COVID stuff under control. A lot of good friends of mine up there, but, mate, I'll be coming to Plymouth and Sir so Francis Drake and uh, and <laughs> and James Cook may have left Plymouth and done amazing things. But I'll tell you what, uh, you know, Mark Ormond is, is right up there with the heroes that I've ever that uh, considered in life, that's for sure. So
0: really, uh, really appreciate you joining us here today, man.
2: Sharing your Thanks, story. you mate. Thank you. Appreciate
0: it. I couldn't say anything better than what Kim just shared. I, I completely echo that wholeheartedly. Uh Mark, what a, uh, I know an hour never does this never does this justice, but today it certainly doesn't do this any remote uh justice. So really appreciate you sharing your story. I appreciate how your what your mindset is like as you share that story, right? You're a great storyteller, by the way. There's so much clarity. And you almost can walk right with you as you go through your journey, and that's the sign of a great, unique storyteller. So, um, look you. forward to, to seeing your story more, and maybe even on the silver screen yeah. soon, which is an awesome project. And and, and I want to mention a couple of these charities that you that you're a part of. At least via LinkedIn. Correct me if I'm wrong, but but uh, trustee and grenade, and uh, you're doing some executive coaching. You mentioned your work uh, there with the the Royal Marines Charity. I mean, you just don't stop. And that's a big part, it seems like, of your secret for success as well. Absolutely. And getting around good people.
2: You know, those are all good people. They help me. We've got similar values, morals, ethics. And that's
0: a big part of it, too. So tons of practical takeaway from this, this little hour-long with uh, Mark Ormrod. So how can folks connect with you? So that's what we we want folks connecting with you because so many other people can benefit from from your testimony. So how can folks do that?
2: Uh, I'm on all the the regular social media channels, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, I've just tried TikTok, but that's brutal. There's some <laughs> real brutal comments on that thing, um, so I may I may step away from that one. But also, you know, my web my website markhamer.com there's contact information on there.
0: Wonderful. I, I'll tell you, my uh, Kim. I don't know about you, but my life is better, and my week is better, my month is better from having spent this last hour with Mark. How about you? Yeah, mate. well, they'd they
1: say that you become uh, part of the people that are around you. And mate, if I can, if I can take a piece of you with me, mm. wherever I go from here, and then I'll be, I'll be proud, and I'll be thankful. Mm. So uh, respect to you, mate, respect for the service when you gave it, and what the services
0: that you're now giving. So, uh, you know, I just say total respect. Agreed, Thank agreed. So, uh, but really quick, we want to make sure we connect Kim here. So, Kim, CEO of the Logistics Executive Group, you also have, so you're doing a bunch of work globally, you and your team. The Vodcast, where we initially met it just keeps on rocking and rolling. So, how can folks connect with you?
1: Yeah, sure. Just uh, all, all the usual places logisticsexecutive.com. We're pretty much global these days with our executive consulting and uh, corporate advisory and our executive search many people know us for. So LinkedIn, we're, we're, we're doing a lot on LinkedIn. So Kim Winter on LinkedIn or logistics
0: executive group, the hub of your supply chain. Wonderful. And we'll make sure the links for both Mark Ormerod and Kim Winter are in the show notes. So we'd encourage y'all to connect. What an outstanding, uplifting, we told you, we told you it's gonna be a special conversation and inspiring conversation. And one of the best parts about it, it puts other things in perspective. Right. I already know. Thanks to Mark <laughs> and what he shared here today. Some of the little nail biting problems I had coming in via email and this ping and that ping. Oh, those that's small potatoes. So big thanks to Mark Ormrod. Make sure y'all connect with him. Big thanks to Kim Winter. And of course, the great people over at logistics executive group, big thanks to you, our listener. Thanks for tuning in and, and walking with us through this, this, this journey we're on. That where we meet fascinating people, just like Mark. Hey, if you're a veteran and you got a story to tell, Reach out to us. You can find us across social media. You can find us at supplychainnow.com. Reach out. We want to see if we can't get you into our production schedule. But most importantly, if you do anything today, do good, give forward, be the change. Be like Mark Ormrod. And on that note, we'll see you next time right here at Veteran Voices. Thanks, everybody.